What are you doing here? Everybody, welcome to the latest episode of Fresh Cuts. This is Mike. Joining me as always, it's Venom. How are you, Venom? Greetings and salutations, male chauvinists and the women they torment. I'm doing pretty well, Mike. How the hell are you? That's kind of speaking for all of us, right? I guess according <laughs> <laughs> in a roundabout way to relate hey, to our. I know I'm toxic, so at least I'm not hiding anything. <laughs> <laughs> all right, and then joining us as well, it's Don and Ellie. What's up, Don? How are you? Hey, what's going on? Always great to be here. Cool. All right. Well, uh, before we get into our movie, I just want to say really quick that uh, I have been uploading the episodes to YouTube kind of as a secondary place for people to listen. I say listen, not watch, because we don't really do any video stuff. So technically, even if you're uh, listening, I was about to say watching, but listening on YouTube, you're still just listening on watching. And I have uh, I'm happy to say that I've seen the uh, views start to rise. Um, I know in an oversaturated market now, it's it's kind of hard to get noticed, just kind of blindly throwing it out there. Um, Technically, we are on a network, but uh, that's probably most people that already subscribed to the network. And so I just want to say thanks for people that or thanks to people that are listening on YouTube and uh, feel free to leave comments if that's the way you are on the show us how wrong we are, how right we are, everything in between. But, uh, yeah, just appreciate it. Hey, if you need some video to put down over the podcast, you could just uh, you could do like a little uh, PowerPoint of just nothing but sexy pictures of me. I mean, I think that would sell. No, no takers? Damn it. Oh, sorry. No, I was muted. Uh, I was going to say, that sounds like a plan to me. I was going to be down for it. I, I didn't know I was muted. <laughs> I mean, eventually we're going to have the uh, the No More Room in Hell sexy calendar with all of us, you know, just posing in our Speedos and whatnot. Oh, yeah. I, I know Derek's excited. <laughs> uh, he'll probably be like the first customer as well. <laughs> first customer, first one to pose. There you go. <laughs> Derek will get January. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, today we are discussing the movie Men from Studio A24. Everyone should be familiar with A24 now. Um, and the synopsis is as follows. A young woman goes on a solo vacation to the English countryside following the death of her ex-husband. So... We will start out with general thoughts, as usual, and let's kick it over to Venom. What did you think of the movie Men? Going into this, uh, you know, everyone knows I don't watch trailers, but going into it based on the title of the film and the poster that I saw, I kind of assumed it was going to be, you know, kind of what it ended up becoming. 
But I will say the movie had a lot of surprises. It, it impressed me in a lot of ways. Uh, I ended up actually really, really liking this film. I think the cinematography was gorgeous. Um, there's some really great symbolism and iconography throughout the film that's just stellar, uh, which really adds to the storyline, too, when you actually like know, when you recognize the iconography or the symbolism in there, it just kind of adds something to the movie. Uh, I think these performances are stellar. I, I think our performances by, uh, what, Jesse Buckley and obviously Rory Kinnear, um, who plays, what, about a half dozen characters in this movie. Um, just amazing work. Uh, the way that he was able to portray five or six different characters, but still make them unique in some way. You know, it was very obvious, maybe not very obvious, especially with one of the characters, because uh, one of the characters in the movie is actually a child. And they actually digitally put Rory Kinnear's face on the child. So it's a little like as you're watching the film, whenever we see that child, it's a little off putting. But for whatever it's worth, I think it actually works for this film. It actually adds a, a, an extra level of almost I don't want to say ambiguity, but like the like the potential for this being an unreliable narrator. You know, I, I know a lot of people have kind of walked away from this saying that it's just a psychological film, that nothing in the film actually happened and that it's all just symbolism and metaphor and that it's all just an unreliable narrator kind of acting out the movie in her head, you know, just to try to come to terms with the death of her husband. Um, I don't see it that way. Obviously, once we get to the spoiler section, I'll discuss more as to how I see it. But um, despite this movie kind of being a look at toxic masculinity, I legitimately enjoyed this movie. I enjoyed all the symbolism. I enjoyed, I even enjoyed all of Rory Kinnear's, um, characters, which kind of, eh, actually, I'm going to hold that for the spoiler section because that be, it might be a little bit spoilery, but, um, just all, all of his performances of all of his characters, James, um, the the actor's name is what Papa Asaidu or Asaidu. Um, I think James, even though he's not in the film very much, uh, I think he does a really good job. At least he does a good job at portraying the character he's trying to portray. And you know, it, it's a nice small film in the sense that there's only about you know half dozen to eight people in the film. You know, we get a best friend, a female best friend for Harper, kind of chime in and then show up at the end of the film. Um, but overall. And this score, holy shit, I love this score. And even more than this score, throughout this film, we get scenes of absolute silence where there is no score and the only audio is just, you know, sounds of the film. You know, maybe, you know, the the, uh, the wind blowing through the trees or, you know, birds singing in the background, things like that. And I think it really adds a great sense of isolation to the film, you know, making the viewer, especially if you're watching this in a theater, really feel you know, Harper's isolation in this and how she's really dealing with all of this on her own. So, yeah, uh, I'm going to go ahead and stop here for my general thoughts, because I have a lot to say during the spoiler section. But, yeah, I really, really enjoyed this film. Um, this is amazing, guys, because we're on a three week streak now where I, I'm seeing movies that are all in my top five. With, with with the first, obviously, being my, you know, very obvious number one. But, yeah, three weeks in a row, um, maybe not for all of us, but at least for me, three weeks in a row of stellar films and men is a perfect way to cap off this kind of trifecta of uh, good reviews. So, like I said, I'll cut myself off here and I will have a lot more to say during the spoiler section. 
Okay, let's uh, throw it over to another man, Don and Ellie. What do you think of men? Uh, I fucking hate A24. Um, <laughs> yeah, bad movie, making me think. Um, this is not what I signed up for for genre watching. Uh, I, as you can tell, I have a very hate-hate tolerance with uh, A24 in their films. Uh, as it still stands, I, I still find Hereditary and X to be the only good films I've seen from them. So, yeah. I, I, I get where this is coming from, though. This is I would probably say this may be the highest on my dislikes, um, if that uh, means anything to anybody, just because I know that that's not necessarily you know the common opinion in this. But I, I just find everything ham-fisted, very just, you know, lacking in subtlety and just, you know, not necessarily picking any kind of a topic that really needed to be explored as in-depth as it does. I mean, men are bad and shouldn't hit women. Wow, we really needed an hour and 40-minute movie to know that. I mean, geez, you know, try to come up with something that, you know, is actually worth the time and effort. I mean, everything in here that's, you know, just blatantly obvious about men not going after women and trying to, you know, treat them with respect and kindness. I mean, it was plainly obvious from the beginning the longer it went on it just became over the top and unbearable and i just i i I hated almost most almost all of it there's a few things i did like i i did like you know the technical aspects venom is you know right on cue it looks amazing and everything kind of plays out with that kind of glossy mainstream you know studio sheen that just makes it even though I'm not a fan of the content, I, I liked watching the experience. I, I never like hate watched it, so it it came off incredibly well in that regard. And I, I, I do kind of like the finale. I think the concept of what it does is enjoyable. I don't think the execution is there, but I, I definitely do enjoy where it went in the finale. I, I did like that part of it. And uh, finally, yay dongs. I mean... For a film about toxic masculinity, we finally get male dick in this film more than women's, and I'm I'm all for it. So, equal opportunity, go film. So, other than that, ugh. a little something for the ladies. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, but yeah, um, I, I I will say it's probably my favorite of the films I've disliked from them, but um, I, I'm still not necessarily high seen as how I've only, I only seen two films from them. I really like, so. To each his own. Absolutely. Okay. Well, yeah, I gotta say, you know, a 24, I definitely believe as a studio, they operate on kind of a spectrum of like psychological horror, such as this to, you know, they do some more straight up uh, on the surface horror, I guess. But um, yeah, I knew this. This one I expected to be polarizing. Um, I, if I had a guess, it would be Tom that didn't like it as much. Venom, I, I wasn't sure. I, I, I thought Venom would probably like it, but it seems like he liked it a lot. Um, for me, yeah, I, I dug it. This is kind of my shit. I don't know if I'm just getting older and I appreciate psychological stuff more. I don't know. But uh, I thought technically or technical wise, it was uh, pretty well done. I liked the score um, that went with the movie. Um, I 
like that. So here, I'm trying to think of a way to explain this. I agree in one sense that the overall message it's presenting is not subtle, but I still believe within that there is subtle things that happen in the movie that are part of the larger message that the way the movie crafts it is um, certain instances. If you isolate them out, they wouldn't be seen as such like a big deal, I guess, but the point of the movie is to kind of say it's all one encompassing thing and i I mean i guess by the name of the title of the movie it's not a big surprise what it's trying to say in that sense but you know little things that i can't really start listing off out loud um until we get to spoilers because i don't want to be too specific also because of the aforementioned movie mix-up that i did some of the details have left me because it's now been what over like a week and a half since i actually saw it so there's some things i probably have forgotten that maybe you know once we get to spoilers it'll jar my memory yeah but, i went you know, and watched I, it again this weekend just because for the same reason <laughs> okay yeah um i i think you know there is lots of tense moments i think you know we get some symbolism right off the bat when she gets to the vacation home um that was probably like the most on the nose thing and we we can mention that once we get to spoilers but overall you know i i like the story i like what it presented and i liked how it was crafted and i like the choice uh i think you know it it could have been distracting having the the main actor play so many of the male roles but i think you know i i appreciate and i respect the reason it was done in this movie and what it's trying to say i guess and uh i thought it was all right i actually i didn't notice it at the very start it's, it's kind of as we more got in i was like why do they look so similar and i was like oh shit duh that's why you know like the more you start thinking about it but um yeah um uh, you know without spoiling there's not a whole lot else i can say but i i thought it was a pretty strong movie so i'll kick it back to better Oh, yeah. I mean, strong, in my opinion, strong is an understatement. Uh, I know Don and I are going to be at odds for this one. And, you know, that's fine. It, it happens. But I, I love this movie. I, I love I loved almost everything about it. And yes, I'm a man saying this. And I have read some reviews written by men that are panning this movie, absolutely trashing it as just, you know, man is bad, woman is good. And I ultimately, I don't necessarily think that's the message of the film. Yes, it's the kind of the surface message, if you will. But I think that th this is the type of movie that has a lot of layers. There's a lot of layers here. And if you want to look at this as just a metaphor for toxic masculinity, you're more than welcome to. But if you dig deeper, I mean, you know, there's a lot more about, you know, finding oneself and, you know, uh, well, nothing I want to talk about right now until we get to the spoiler section. But yeah, like I said, I there, there's there's a lot of layers here, and yeah, I, and I, enjoy it. Mm -hmm. I was gonna say on the point because I think I think you brought it up, Venom, at the beginning. Um, on the point of you know potential unreliable narrator, narrator, I understand why people might think that's going on, but I think it's more just surreal surrealism going on not so much um bad narrator as in like is what we're seeing on screen literally taking place perhaps not probably not in the sense you know like i said it's probably not literally happening but it it's not 
betraying anything that she's conveying. It's just they're using surrealism in certain parts. It, yeah, that's, I, that, that was my takeaway from it, at least. I mean, I think she is an unreliable narrator, but not for the entirety of the film, just for the whole thing with everyone looking the same in this town. I think I, I don't think the men in this town look the same at all. I, I think she saw them as the same um, because they all had a certain something that bothered her about them. Um, and, you know, like I said, once we get into the spoiler section, I can uh, kind of talk about that a little bit more and what each male character actually represented. Because, yes, each male character in this movie does represent something. And it's not just general toxic masculinity. There's actually a little bit more to it. So um, I will say this movie is very cerebral. If you watch it and just take it at, at surface value, uh, you know, it's probably going to leave you scratching your head. The last 15 minutes of the movie is incredibly over the top. And if you don't understand the symbolism of what you're watching, uh, you're just going to be like, what the fuck? What the fuck is this? And I've heard multiple reviews like that already on YouTube from different uh, movie reviewers um, talking about how they just didn't get the ending. They don't know what the hell that was supposed to represent and that it left them with a bad taste in their mouth. I adore these last 10 minutes, 10 to 15 minutes of this movie. I absolutely love it. And I loved it even more after the second watch and really digesting what each character in this movie kind of represents. So yeah, including a character that, you know, we, you could make the argument that you see or you don't see, but uh, at the very least we see a statue of him, if you will. So um, yeah, I don't know. Unless you guys have anything else you want to say that's uh, non-spoiler, I guess we can move on. Um, I, I do have one thing, but it's a really spoiler thing, so I'll say it in a few seconds after the warning. Okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, so there it is, folks. This is your final spoiler warning. We are going to go ahead and talk more deeply about this film. Um, not much of a walkthrough, honestly. You know, a woman, uh, after dealing with the death of her husband, rents a cottage in, um, you know, northern um, England, and while she's there, she has to deal with um, both the guilt for the death of her husband and um, kind of the toxic masculinity that's being displayed by the men in this town. And it just kind of, you know, devolves from there into a climax that's absolutely insane. So um, let's I'm just going to rip through this um, uh, walk through because there's so much to dissect. All right. Our movie opens up with a scene. I'm sorry. Uh, we're introduced to Harper. Harper is um, recently lost her husband. Uh, and that's all we know about her husband at this point in the film is that she recently lost her husband to kind of get away and try to come to terms with, um, you know, the sadness and guilt that she might be feeling. She rents a cottage. Uh, I believe the name of the town is uh, Coston or Coston, something like that in, in Northern England. A beautiful cottage. I mean, you could almost say mansion. It's a gigantic house, a beautiful Victorian home. And, and instantly, as soon as she arrives, uh, she sees an apple tree and the, the symbolism starts. Uh, as soon as she uh, walks onto the property. Which yeah. OK, so that's a perfect place to start with that. Uh, this mm -hmm. whole thing is a religious allegory, correct? The Garden of Eden, the jesting sin and all of that kind of There crap. are elements of that in here. Yeah, I wouldn't go so far as to say this is a religious movie. I would say uh, that that specific scene. Yeah, I think that's what 
maybe that's already what Venom's getting it because I would say that scene is, but it's not something like Mother where the entirety of the story. Yeah, know. no, I I know it's not like Mother where everything is you know uh, play for play on the Bible, but <clears throat> right. No, I was gonna say because you know the ending of the film, you know, I mean we're gonna get there in a few seconds, but you know Snake shedding, uh, you know releasing the guilt of the serpent and you know all of that kind of. I mean, I'm not terribly familiar with, you know, everything in there, but the men represent the, you know, the snake and all of the, you know, events are going on are like various forms of guilt, right? The various I, sins. Or... That's one way of looking at it. Yeah. I mean, I could see that interpretation. Absolutely. Um, I, like I said, I've, I've, I've got like my interpretation and then I went online and read reviews and there's at least four or five different interpretations of what this movie could potentially you know, stand for. Obviously, the overall theme is very apparent. It's right there on the surface. But um, yeah, there, there's some conflicting story, like what the tunnel represents. I've heard conflicting stories of what the tunnel represents, which we'll get to here in a couple of minutes, uh, blah, blah, blah. So yeah, um, Al, I, I actually watched an interview with Alex Garland uh, today, actually, and he says that he actually does not enjoy spoon feeding his audiences. He purposely, all of his films, I mean, look back to things like Annihilation and Ex Machina. Um, he doesn't spoon feed plot points to you. He wants his audience to kind of come up with their own interpretation. And specifically on the topic of this movie, Men, he flat out said, I'm not, you know, to the interviewer, I'm not going to tell you what this, you know, what I think everything in this movie represents. I want the viewer to come up with their own idea because I think that's truly where art is, you know, um, ultimately appreciated is in the individual and their take on the art. You know, yeah, to have, uh, I was going to uh-huh. I was going to say not to not to sound pretentious myself, but usually when I think of like art, I mean, that's kind of like the beauty in it sometimes is being able to be interpreted in different ways. Exactly. I mean, how many people, I mean, 50 different, 50 people could look at a Jackson Pollock painting and they could come up with 50 different things, what it represents. That's, that's the beauty of art and cinema is no different. And this movie is, I mean, in my opinion, this is a work of art. I mean, this is, it's something that makes you think if you're not the kind of person who likes to think while watching a quote unquote horror movie, then, you know, obviously this movie's not going to work for you and you know, that's fine. But for me, ultimately, yeah, I totally love this. So yeah, and uh, mm-hmm. I, I like what I like about the way this movie does it is like a lot of a lot of the dialogue makes certain elements obvious. Like you don't have to like dig much deeper when there's certain conversations, certain confrontations. Like those are all pretty on the nose about what's going on. But then you kind of like pull the microscope back or pull the curtain back or whatever, and you kind of look at the sum of things and I feel like that's where like interpretation starts coming in or, you know, a lot of like, like I mentioned before, the surrealism stuff that's going on. That's where you start to like think, okay, what is this representing? Um, why is this happening? Why is this what she's seen? Blah, blah, blah. So I, I think this movie d- dabbles on a little bit of both. Um, so it's not like all 100% like oh i need to be able to interpret everything everything going on just yeah certain elements of it yeah you're not going to interpret this entire movie i mean if alex garland refuses to interpret the movie for the audience then i doubt the audience will be able to nail it 100 percent. but yeah i mean mm -hmm. i mean harper walking up to 
a tree with like delicious looking fruit grabbing an apple and taking a bite. I don't think it takes like, you know, a scholar to see what they're going for in that specific uh, sequence. Exactly. You know? Yeah. That, that, that's not a hard one at all. Mm-hmm. All right. So after Harper finds said apple on the tree, she picks one of the apples and starts eating it as she approaches the house. And uh, when she gets to the house, uh, the door opens and she is introduced to James, of course, played by Rory Kinnear, who plays all of the men in this town. And I guess now that we've met, Jeffrey is basically the owner, the owner of the house or, or potentially the manager of the house, if you will. But basically, he's renting out the house. And right from the start, you can tell that Jeffrey is like a kind of a proper, you know, English gentleman and somewhat um, somewhat funny, or at least he's trying to be funny. But I mean, his his masculinity is very subtle. But right now, while we're at this point, I wanted to talk about what I kind of feel um, the men in this uh, movie represent. And to me, each guy in this movie represents a different aspect of toxic masculinity. Um, Jeffrey is the knight in shining armor. He's the guy who wants to be with a woman that needs him, that's weaker than him, so that he can support her and quote-unquote save her. Um, later in the film, she meets a uh, a priest. Uh, and of course, in England, they're called vicars. And again, played by Rory Kinnear. Uh, the vicar is the gaslighter. He's gaslighting um, Harper. He basically has a conversation with Harper talking about how men should be allowed to kind of let their animal instincts um, out every now and again and that they should be given the opportunity to apologize. The reason they're having this conversation is that early in the film, we see a flashback where Harper and James are having an argument, a fairly heated argument, where James actually takes the phone away from Harper's hands, sees that she's talking about him to a friend of hers in a text, and it it blows up into a big, you know, back and forth argument until he finally punches her. Folks, punches. He punched her in the goddamn nose. Hey, I'll give her credit, though. She didn't didn't get knocked out, so she's a tough girl. I'll give her that. But yeah, I mean, uh, punching a woman because they had a disagreement. Um, And granted, at this point, the divorce is pretty obvious, like they've already been talking about divorce and everything else. Um, I wanted to go over the men before I went over too many more, uh, too much more of the plot points of this movie. The policeman, the policeman represents men not believing women. Um, Obviously, the Me Too movement put a big dent in that and, you know, police and men in general not believing women when they say that they've been wrong, that they've been assaulted, whatever the case may be. Uh, when you see the police officer in the in the one scene in the bar, he pretty much dispels everything that that um, Harper's talking about. And, you know, it just kind of blows it off like ah, it's not that big a deal. He's harmless. Like uh, they're, they're talking about a guy which we'll, we'll get into here in a little bit who's kind of stalking, if you will, Harper while she's alone in the house and uh, kind of what he represents. But, you know, we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, the boy, the child. He represents the possessive side of men, the fact that a woman shouldn't have the right to say no to a man. You know what I mean? They shouldn't be their own people. They, they shouldn't have their own minds. The little boy asks her, uh, you know, I want to play hide and seek. And she says, no, thank you. Uh, and, and literally calls her a bitch because she doesn't want to play hide and seek. Um, so, again, yeah, that's the that's men looking at women as objects or possessions, if you will. 
Um, and then we see the uh, the nameless bar patron, also, once again, played by Rory Kinnear. Um, he represents lust. He represents the fact that women are just soft playthings for men. And l- literally, he doesn't even have a line. This character has no line in the film. But every time we see him, he's basically eye-fucking Harper. Uh, first in the scene in the bar, and then later when we see him chasing her through the house. You know, the look at his eye is very rapey. <laughs> Let's go with that. Mm-hmm. And then James, her husband, he represents... All of them. Yes, because in the few minutes that we spend with James, he literally shows every single one of those traits. And when you kind of understand that, I think the ending scene makes more sense. But we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, So, yeah, all the different people, you know, and, and I've heard reviewers talk about how they don't like how there's not one good man in this movie. Like because literally every representation of a man in this movie is somewhat negative. But at the same time, I think that's what Alex Garland was going for. I mean, this yeah. movie was made by a man. Don't forget, folks. <laughs> I, I think, too, like, he's also trying to acknowledge that, like, there's a scale to it because mm-hmm. obviously different forms are worse. than Like, if you're straight up willing to, like, hit a woman when you get angry, obviously that's, like, a lot worse than the knight in shining armor guy um, uh, yeah, or a representative. And I wanted to say like the, the I was going to bring him up to um, wh- what's his, what's his name? Just, is it Jeffrey? The, who he starts out with like the, the owner of the home. Yeah. Jeffrey. Jeffrey. Cause also the scene at the bar, I, I brought up in general thoughts, like something that happens that it, it seems perfectly innocuous in a vacuum, but because of everything the movie's going for, it kind of shows like a representative of how things start, right? He, she comes to the bar that night. I think she's just, you know, she takes a walk, ends up at the bar, mm-hmm. and she has to turn him down from buying her a drink, like, what, three, four times before he finally backs off. And now, but it, like like I said, tell, in a, tell in a, in a, the bartender, your money's uh, her money's no good here. Yeah, she's literally not allowed to buy herself her own drink. Right <laughs> now, now if you isolate that scenario out, right away from everything else going on in the movie, you probably think to yourself, okay, what's the big deal? He's just trying to buy her a drink, be nice, blah 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 blah. But if you if you add that into everything going else is in the context of the story with all the men in the movie, it's just another man basically telling her, you know, you don't make the decisions for yourself. Right. Even though he's trying to do it in a nice way, like, Hey, I'm just trying to buy her a drink and socialize. Like how many times does she have to say no before it's like, okay, stop asking her. Like, it's not that she doesn't want to talk or it wants to like totally shun him. She just is like, no, I don't, want you to you know i don't want a drinking ball for me um so i i thought that that was like an interesting way of doing it where mm-hmm. you know there's there's obviously a scale of things that just I, I think they're just saying women like in daily life women put up with this kind of stuff uh in general and from all sorts of different type of men it, it's almost i think it's more like the culture in a way of of men than specifically each individual man being like an evil person right i don't think the movie is even trying to say that all men are evil you know necessarily 
I mean, because ultimately I wouldn't call Jeffrey evil. He's misguided. Yes. I mean, he has an antiquated way of looking at women. So in 2022, his attitude is a little problematic. Maybe in the 60s and 70s, he was a you know top notch guy. But yeah, that that attitude in 2020. Well, is, yeah, I, I think it's like a cultural thing, right? Yeah, that's true. The culture of just how men are. It's not necessarily like an aggressive thing or a, I'm trying to like right. be a bad person. It's just ingr- it's almost like kind of like subconsciously ingrained. Like that's how you, you know, that's how you act, right? Yeah, absolutely. 100%. So um, I wanted to get that out of the way before I kept going with the walkthrough. But it, like I said, folks, we're going to be jumping around all over the place. Not much of a walkthrough. Um, as as I said, Harper meets Jeffrey and Jeffrey, like I said, turns, you know, is, is a he tries to be a nice guy. He seems like a good guy, tries to be funny, blah, blah, blah. But then literally within a couple of minutes of meeting her, we start to see the masculinity come out. And what does he say to her when they're in the bathroom? Ladies, please watch what you flush. He's in a, he's in the room by with just Harper. It's literally just Jeffrey and Harper. But he literally says out loud, ladies, please be careful what you flush. You know, almost like he's talking down to them, like like a teacher or something. And, you know, ultimately, it's still valid because, you know, the house has a septic tank and you can't flush, you know, too many paper products and things like that down there. But the fact that he pointed out ladies, you know, rather than just saying a general you know, please be careful what you flush. We have a septic tank. No, ladies, please watch what you flush. Very pretentious, you know, so instantly, you know, already we're, you know, not really happy with uh, Jeffrey. Um, So after she, you know, kind of gets the tour from Jeffrey, she ends up getting a phone call from her friend Riley. And this is where we get a little bit more information about Harper and James. We get a flashback where we see Harper and James arguing. This is before the punch, but this is basically where James is begging Harper not to divorce him. At this point, they've already, you know, Harper's already made the decision that they're going to be divorced. And, you know, you see James just, you know, taking taking turns, just saying the, the most awful things, telling her, you know, why don't you love me? Why is my life worth so little to you? Like everything is about James. At no point in the conversation does he even talk about any concerns with Harper, her well-being, her mental health, anything to the point that she actually snaps at him and says, I have a fucking life, too. And you don't appreciate that, that I you know, why does everything have to be about you? Blah, blah, blah. At this point, this is where James basically, you know, says just one of the most awful fucking things that you can say. He literally looks at Harper and says, well, I'm going to kill myself. And when I, and when I do, you're going to have to live with it for the rest of your life. And when when I do, when I do kill myself, I'm going to torment you. He doesn't necessarily say haunt, but he says the word torment, um, which obviously just a memory of something can torment you. You don't need anything physically there tormenting you uh, to get that kind of torment. But, yeah, literally we see, you know, him threatening her. Uh, you know, so already he's gaslighting her. He's making her a possession. He's not caring about her thoughts and ideas and, you know, her life and everything else and even her mental health. So, yeah, um, you know, James is just a very, how can I, uh, vain, conceited, just all about himself. Selfish, I guess would be the best word. 
Everything in all the the two major scenes that we have with James, everything is about him. My heart is broken. I'm pleading with you. I'm this. I'm that. It's never about Harper. And yeah, it, it, after a while, it just gets kind of hard to watch. Even even as a man, yeah. it gets hard to watch. Yeah, and I forgive me because I can't remember if it's during the same sequence, like the flashback, or if we get it later. But one of the things. I think it's when they're having their blow up like on the bed or at least in the bedroom. And, you know, after she kind of does the spiel about like, oh, you know, I have a life too, blah, blah, blah. And I think like one of the last things she asks is like after she makes it clear uh, that she wants a divorce or that she's going to get a divorce. She says, like, what do you want from me, basically? And the line he says is like, I, I think it was it like. The exact I need line you to was, love me or I, something no, like I that. I want you to love me. I want you to. Love I, I want you to love me. And That's what I mean. Not, exactly. not I want you in my life. Not you know. I want to make you happy. No, I want you to love me. Or yeah, and he he doesn't ask. Like it'd it'd be different if he's like asking. Well, I I want to know why you don't love me or something. You know, like mm-hmm. find out what's going on with her. More, it's more like I want you to love me, so you have to do it because yeah, I want yeah. you to. And I think that was kind of like a poignant mm-hmm. look at like the relationship dynamic. And, and that's not to say they didn't ever have a good relationship. I mean, but, who knows? Yeah. I mean, every right. relationship's good at the beginning. So, you know, who knows exactly. how long they were happily married before it all went to shit. But yeah, James, obviously um, not the kind of man that should be with Harper. Harper's a very strong, independent woman. Yes, she's in a relationship with a man, but it's very obvious she doesn't need a man. And I think that's the thing that James can't kind of wrap his head around. You know, um, he's one of those guys that thinks every woman should be with a guy, you know, blah, blah, blah. Boys go with girls. And, you know, to the fact that this woman married him but no longer loves him, he can't fathom that. So something must be wrong with her, not with him, because my friends, if you when you watch the two arguments that they get into, it's very fucking obvious why Harper wants a divorce. This guy, I this guy needs therapy. This guy needs ma- not just anger management, but he needs therapy in general. He He's just not a good person. All right. So later in the film, we get a second uh, flashback to James, and this is when we get a little bit more information. Uh, this is the scene with the punch, where basically James punches Harper straight in the face and um, basically says, you know, I'm not going to let you divorce me. I'm not going to let you divorce me. And she she basically kicks him out of the house, out of, you know, their house, their apartment, after he punches her, you know, at, once she kind of gets her, where, you know, her wits about her, she gets up and she kicks him out instantly. She takes no shit whatsoever, doesn't even listen to a word he has to say, just get out, get out, get out. And then there's a little bit of... Um, little bit of mystery here. I, I think it's kind of up to the viewer to decide, but basically what Harper explains is that James went to the upstairs apartment, the apartment above theirs, and she thinks that he was going to try to climb down from their balcony, uh, you know, from the upstairs balcony down to James and Harper's. But what ends up happening is we see James fall completely down. And as he falls, he's literally facing the front window and staring Harper in the eyes. But he has a very almost scared look on his face, which is kind of why I think what happened happened. So, um, you know, 
Uh, the police chalked it up as an accident, but Harper's not 100% sure if he actually did kill himself, like if he actually committed suicide, or if he actually slipped up there. Now, uh, we, we get a little bit of confirmation of that later in the film when we, uh, well, I, I'm going to hold on to that, actually. Um, so, yeah, so basically, um, you know, we're back in the house. We kind of learned that, you know, James is dead. We know why he's dead. And we also get a gnarly shot of his dead body after the fall, where literally his arm is impaled on one of those um, uh, pointed like uh, fence posts, literally impaled through it to the point where it's almost starting to get sliced um, down the middle. Keep that in the back of your mind, by the way, folks. Uh, we see his ankle is completely broken, like the foot is basically at a 90 degree angle and, you know, his eyes are open, you know, obviously bleeding out. He is very, very dead. So the question is, did he commit suicide or did he fall trying to get down to the to, you know, to their balcony? I'm I personally am going to go with this was not a suicide. Um, James doesn't seem like the type he seems like the type that would threaten suicide to someone but he doesn't seem like he would actually have the balls to do it um and like i said the fact that he you know why would he go up to the upstairs apartment you know why wouldn't you go up to the roof um there's there was a motive there because don't forget he broke into another apartment he broke into the upstairs apartment so that doesn't sound like a guy who's trying to kill himself to me i don't know uh what kind what did you guys kind of get from that at least at this point in the film no, I'm definitely on board that there was some supernatural shenanigans going on because, like you said, he doesn't seem like the type of person that is going to go through with this whole thing. He seems more like he's trying to control her, mm-hmm. and she's not going along with it, so he's going to go sulk in the corner and try to find out a new way of controlling her. So the the whole thing just made little sense as to why he would actually go through with it. Yeah. Mike, did you have any thoughts at this point in the film about James? Um, I had a suspicion it wasn't suicide either. Mm-hmm. I wasn't sure if he slipped or there was something else going on, but I didn't, he didn't seem, because he didn't seem like in an actual state of like grief or depression to where he would do something like that. Cause all I really got from him was, anger. yeah, yeah. Like, of course he was upset in a way, but it was anger and usually suicides don't happen from anger right yeah like i said the look on his face is what to me tells me he did not commit suicide because when someone commits suicide especially from jumping um they're usually at peace with it they tend to close their eyes and just kind of lean over the edge and just fall this one james as james is falling past harper's window you could see that he's looking right in the window with a very scared look on his face and he's and he's like reaching with his arms you know how sometimes when people fall it almost look like they're trying to like grab at something or run in midair or whatever um it it just it felt to me like he was trying to grab the edge of harper's balcony to try to save his life but uh obviously you know probably in my opinion and it seems like in most of ours you know slipped and fell um but obviously since harper doesn't know at this point why he can't you know what the actual truth of the matter is she's living with the guilt of you know did i push him to it did i you know blah 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 which again she should not have that thought uh, somebody somebody committing suicide is 100 percent their decision and I, I i know you know i know guilt is a shitty thing and i know no matter how you 
how she comes to terms with it, you know, there's always going to be that grief in the back of her mind and, you know, the back of her heart, even that, you know, I, I kind of drove him to this. So it's sad, but at the same time, I, you know, <laughs> he was being way too possessive. And obviously even in his death, he showed how possessive he was of Harper. So uh, there you go. All right. So, after this, um, Harper takes a walk. She takes her first walk um, through the kind of the woods surrounding this area. Um, they are very isolated. There is a village in town, but the only thing in the village is a bar and a church. I mean, hey, what else do you need, really? God and booze. <laughs> but um, she's walking around and she finds this tunnel. <clears throat> now, folks, this is where we get I'm hearing some conflicting stories about even what the tunnel represents. Mind you, when I tell you my thoughts, I'm not saying that I'm absolutely correct. I could be 100% wrong about this entire movie, and that's okay, because I didn't make it. So I don't know what the hell it's about. But the, she she gets to the... Oh, and by the way, the sound design in this scene is fucking amazing. Um, obviously, it's a long tunnel, but it has some unbelievable echo throughout almost supernatural echo echo that doesn't make sense for a tunnel that's really not that long i mean it's a maybe a quarter mile maybe a eighth of a mile maybe even less um it seems like something that you could walk from one end of to the other in like less than five minutes you know what i mean oh way less than five minutes maybe like three minutes but um when she gets here, you know she's kind of enamored with the echo and she starts kind of singing like going oh Oh, and just doing it uh, kind of, um, what's that called? Uh, almost like harmonizing with herself, if you will. And mm -hmm. the sound design in this scene is so amazing. I, absolutely, I, I, I feel bad if people end up seeing this on VOD or home, at home for the first time, because this sound design in the theater was spectacular. And then the fact that we, we hear that throughout the film, at multiple points throughout the film, we hear that echo again come back into the score. And it's just so fucking great. Absolutely love it. So anyway, while she's in the tunnel, she's doing her little uh, you know echo game. And then suddenly from the other end of the tunnel, someone stands up. All we see is a silhouette, because obviously she's in a darkened tunnel. And the other end of the tunnel just looks like light, you know, just bright light. But we see someone get up, someone who oddly kind of looks like James. We don't actually see them. Like I said, they're silhouette. They're completely blacked out. But he's wearing he's wearing like a, um, a suit jacket, very similar to what James was wearing or Jeffrey was wearing when he gave uh, a Harper the tour. Now, I've heard different interpretations. The one that I like the most is that the tunnel represents death. And that when she gets to the tunnel, she's very standoffish, like she doesn't want to walk through it. You know, you know what I mean? Like she's almost like she's scared of what's on the other end. And then we see the male individual stand up at the other end. And I've heard people say that that represents James coming back from the dead, because at this point, James hasn't really been tormenting her physically. But then after this scene, she actually ends up seeing James, at least in her head, a couple of times throughout the film, and then one major one at the end, which, when, which we'll get to. So, I mean, that's the interpretation I kind of liked about the tunnel, that it kind of represents death, or maybe the transition between Earth and the afterlife, things like that. So, I don't know. It's up to the individual. Yeah, transition seems to be right, because that's, I mean, usually like, you know, the usual tunnel metaphors. Yeah. I mean, outside of, you know, the, 
sexual one, but it was never really going that way. So it, it kind of, I, I I was going more towards transition as well. But yeah, I mean, this whole movie has a theme of transition because they they talk about the Green Man. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Green Man, for those who don't know, is, and I'm reading this off of Wikipedia, so bear with me, the Green Man is a legendary being primarily interpreted as the symbol of rebirth, representing the cycle of new growth that occurs every spring. So, I, <laughs> I start, when I, w- once you kind of come to terms with what the Green Man represents, you start to kind of realize that the naked stranger that we see throughout the film. And actually I didn't actually even get to the naked stranger, but the naked stranger that we see throughout the film, in my opinion, seems like he is the green man, not a representation of the green man. He is the green man. Um, yeah. Why do I, the reason I think that uh, we, we got to wait a little bit. There's a little bit more interpretation coming at the end, but we'll get to it. Okay. So after, you know, um, this gen, this person at the other end of the tunnel gets up Uh, basically starts running after her, running towards Harper. Harper obviously is terrified. She runs out of there, runs all the way home. Or uh, excuse me, no, she does not run all the way home. She ends up running towards the church. And this, and then when she gets to the church, this is when we get the scene with the with the boy, the, the teenage boy who has Rory Kinnear's face digitally placed on his head and it's so fucking creepy looking like i didn't realize as i'm watching the movie what it was i actually had to when i got home i i did some research and yeah that's still rory rory i I didn't realize it either i just was like damn this kid looks creepy yeah that's what i was saying i thought the kid i thought the kid had that like that old people disease where like the body ages faster than it should like he's actually 11 but he looks 40 you know one of those things but no it's just called being british (laughs) Oh, <laughs> yeah. It, it took me a while to realize that was him as well, because I I was kind of like Mike. I thought it was, I I, I knew it was some kind of some. I knew it was something CGI'd onto the face, but I couldn't tell who it was. It took me a while to realize it was actually Rory. Yeah, yeah. Same here. Almost the end of the film, really. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of where I noticed it too, because they finally do that one shot where it lingers on him just long enough, and it it kind of like makes the the, the slot click in your head. It's like, oh, that's who it was. Yep, exactly. So, um, and we already talked about this scene. You know, the boy wants to play hide and seek. She says no, and he calls her a bitch. But then at that moment, as he gets up, and by the way, he's wearing a fucking baby doll mask too, which again, incredibly off-putting. He's wearing a baby doll mask, and then he pulls the mask off, and he's got that weird, fucked-up Rory Kinnear face on him. It's like I don't know which one's more off-putting, the mask or the face. So, <laughs> um, so like I said, after he calls Harper a bitch for not playing with them, the vicar comes out, apologizes for the boy, and then they start to have a conversation. Um, as in Harper and the vicar or the priest, for those of us in America, um, and. We see kind of the, the the tone of what the priest is saying change as the conversation goes along. At first, you know, he's very receptive to the information that she gives him about her husband dying and, you know, the grief that she feels. Um, but then he starts to turn it around on her. And this is what I was talking about where he was gaslighting her, where he's basically... I, I forget what the exact quote was, but it, it, the gist of it was that, you know... Men are such physical creatures that they should be allowed to, you know, act out and still be given the opportunity to apologize because Harper is telling the story 
to the vicar about how James punched her and then tried to apologize over and over and over, but she wouldn't accept the apology. And the vicar is trying to make her feel bad for not accepting the apology. Like it's like it's her job to let men be men and then let us apologize for it, which is such a shitty fucking attitude. Yeah, he, he more or less turned her grief around saying, well, you're suffering his grief because you didn't give him the opportunity. You're like, do you think he'd still be here if you had given him the opportunity to apologize, basically? Yeah, which uh, that's such a stupid statement to make. Oh, and mind you, during this entire thing, the vicar has his hand on Harper's leg. Um, Harper doesn't react right away. She, you know, she's not like, get the fuck off me. Or, I mean, she doesn't even make a look. She, she doesn't even acknowledge the fact that he put his hand on her leg. But as the movie viewer, we can kind of see his thumb kind of stroking her inner thigh a little bit as his hand is on there. And then the, you know, the conversation kind of delves into, he, he almost implies that he has a lustful desire for her and that it's her fault. Um, you know, another element of toxic masculinity that, you know, men want women because they force it on us or, you know, because they're evil. They're the devil, the temptress, if you will, you know, the succubus syndrome. And, um, you know, so and Harper, mind you, is not like a 10 out of 10. I mean, you know, she, she's an average. She's about as average a looking woman as can be tall, thin, short, black hair, brown eyes. Not much to look at, but not ugly or unattractive in any way. Just a very average woman. And yet he's still accusing her. And by the way, she's not wearing anything remotely sexy or remotely revealing. She's got a fucking trench coat on and loose clothing. And he's still talking about how it's her fault that, you know, that it's the woman's fault that men have the urges that they have. So uh, more more shittiness there. She ends up doing something I absolutely love. She ends up telling the vicar to fuck off. Any woman that'll tell a priest to fuck off is okay in my book. So, yeah, go Harper. Um, after this altercation at the, uh, at the church, she ends up going home. And that evening, um, she notices a naked man walking around her property. Now, the audience, as the audience, we see him earlier. We see him during the tunnel scene as she's walking. He's obviously stalking her. Um, he is butt naked, like incredibly butt naked, you know, just everything hanging out. And um, throughout the film, we see him look very much like a normal human, like, kind of like just a naked Rory Kinnear. But as the movie goes along, he starts putting more and more leaves on his face um, on his face, on his body, to the point where by the end of the movie, one of the last times that we actually see the character, he's almost covered in leaves. Not quite like a ghillie suit or anything crazy like that, but I mean, he's just got leaves all over him that he has been violently poking into his own skin, by the way. Uh, a really cool effect that I actually kind of liked in this one. And like I said, to me, this is the green man. Um, and for those who know the story of the green man, you know that the story, uh, excuse me, you know that the green man wants to procreate and he wants to procreate with mother nature. So does, uh, does Harper represent mother nature in this? Does she represent, you know, Eve? Yeah, there's so many interpretations here, but um, I, I do like the fact that if, um, you know, if the green man is rejected, which, of course, Harper rejects every man in this town, uh, be they child or grown man. Um, so by rejecting the green man, uh, the green man cannot procreate through a woman. He has to procreate through himself. Um, that's what the scripture says. Uh, we'll, we'll get to what that might represent in this film here in a little bit. 
Um, so yeah, like I said, we see the green man, uh, that night, uh, he ends up kind of stalking her, trying to get into her apartment, into the, the, the village, the, the cottage, if you will. He actually sticks his hand through the mail slot, kind of reaching out at her. She screams and says, you know, get the hell out of here. Leave me alone. Um, and, and then we hear the door shaking, like the door, you know, is shaking, blah, blah, blah. And she's basically screaming, get out of here, leave me alone. But then suddenly the door opens and it's Jeffrey. Jeffrey's standing there, um, not naked, no leaves on him. It's it's literally, you know, the the the, the old Jeffrey that we know. And um, basically, you know, telling she's like, someone's out there. Someone's stalking me. And obviously, instantly, you know, he's like, oh, well, that doesn't seem right. Because even earlier in the film, he told her, oh, you probably will never even need to lock your door. Uh, yeah, a, a woman living, you know, staying by herself for two weeks in an isolated town filled with men. Yeah, she's not going to lock her door. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> um, <clears throat> uh, let's see. Uh, the green man. Where were we? Uh, church is over. Oh, right. The attack that night. Uh, Jeffrey, like I said, uh, the the green man, if you will, somehow magically turns into Jeffrey. Uh, remember that for later. Um, obviously, at this point, we don't think that they've hit that he literally transformed. Um, but we do know that there's something by this point in the film, the audience knows that there's something wrong with this town and there's something going on and that Harper's in danger. There's a sense of urgency that's, that hits, you know, um, the, the viewer long before it hits Harper. That's for sure. Um, so then the next day, uh, after, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot. Um, James, uh, Jeffrey does call the police, does call the local police. She tells a female officer uh, the story about how there's a naked man, you know, uh, that she saw him in the woods earlier, but now he was he followed her home and that, that he was stalking her and trying to get into the house. She obviously believes her, takes down all the information, blah, blah, blah. And then within minutes, uh, well, maybe not minutes, but within hours, uh, the police make an arrest. Yeah, they actually find the man, the naked man, if you're a naked uh, uh, Rory Kinnear. And police officer Rory Kinnear <laughs> ends up arresting him. This is where I think that um, that there's not necessarily a supernatural element to this town, that this is just um, Harper's kind of view. Because here we have Rory Calhoun. Uh, excuse me. I keep saying Rory Calhoun. I'm sorry. Rory Kinnear. We have Rory Kinnear arresting Rory Kinnear. And when you watch that scene, it's definitely a head scratcher, especially if you at that point, if you realize that it is the same actor. I think most people by that point are going to realize all the men in this town are played by the same actor. Um, so anyway, after they arrest the guy, they take him away. She decides to go to the bar to kind of, you know, to have a drink and just kind of try to relax. Uh, this is where we get the scene of um, rapist Jeffrey just basically eye-fucking Harper every second that she's in that bar. This is also the scene where Jeffrey refuses to allow her to buy her own drink, like, you know, like she's incapable, basically. And, and even, uh, you know, she, she argues over and over, no, I'm going to pay for my own drink. And then finally, Jeffrey yells at the bartender, uh, her money is no good here, and that's it. And basically, the bartender doesn't take any money from Harper and, you know, just pours her her drink. She's not real happy about this, obviously. And then the police officer walks in, the arresting officer, not the female one that she spoke to. The arresting officer um, walks into the bar 
and basically, you know, lets Harper know that they already released the guy. And she's like, wait a minute, what, what do you mean you released him? He was stalking me. He's butt naked. I mean, do you even know who he is? And the police officer, you know, tries to play it off like, oh, yeah, he's just he's a local guy. He's harmless. He's not going to hurt anybody, blah, 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 um, which is obviously pissing Harper off to no end. You can see the look on her. She's just seething because, the uh, again, the police, you know, kind of represents, you know, women, uh, men not believing women. So, you know, she's pissed off. She runs back home. And then this is where the shit hits the fan, folks. Uh, we, we get a <laughs> this is where we get our big climax. Um, our climax basically starts with um, the uh, the naked man. I call him the green man, um, basically back at Harper's um, villa and uh, stalking her once again. And he once again sticks his hand in the mail slot. This time, though. Uh, Harper is armed. She has a kitchen knife that she grabbed, um, you know, when she first got home uh, because she thought she was being followed by the, the green man. And as it turns out, she was. And this time when the green man sticks his hand through the uh, the mail slot, she jams the knife directly into his forearm right in the middle and and leaves the knife there. Obviously, the knife is big enough that the man outside can't pull his arm out. But guess what? He does it anyway. He pulls his arm out while the kitchen knife slowly splits his arm completely in half from elbow to fingers. It's literally just in half. And then one of the cool things now that we start to see is what we start to see all the different men from the town showing up at her house. And what do they all have in common, my friends? They all have the same injury on their arm their left arm is split into two pieces just dangling there and um at one point when the vicar shows up he actually grabs her by the neck with the split arm almost like he wrapped it around her head her neck I, it was a really cool effect i actually really liked it because um, i can't imagine how painful that must be i mean obviously we're not dealing with a human being here but um more of an allegory so uh, you know they're not going to show any pain and like I said, basically all the men from the town start simultaneously, not simultaneously, but one after another showing up inside of her house to chase her. And they all have the same injury. Like I said, uh, the vicar, the kid, uh, the, the rapey guy at the bar and the police officer, all at different points throughout this scene are chasing Harper through the uh, through her house. Finally, at one point, she gets out of the house. Uh, she walks out the front door and there's the green man, the original green man, butt naked as usual with his arms extended, like, you know, hands uh, outreached like he wants her, you know, he wants to procreate with her. He wants to, you know, if she is mother nature and he is the green man, you know, they want to start the cycle of renewal over again. Of course, she rejects him. And like I said earlier, based on the scripture of the green man, if he cannot procreate with woman, he procreates with himself. And what we basically see and folks uh, bear with me here, uh, we see the green man. Oh, and when he shows up, by the way, he also has his um, his leg is completely broken. His ankle is broken. Does that sound familiar to anybody? <laughs> uh, so his leg is broken. What happens is we see a vagina form on the green man's belly. Literally, I'm not kidding. Uh, we see a vagina form and then we see 
um, his his midsection start expanding like he's basically pregnant and the embryo is growing um, exponentially. And literally, the green man gives birth to Jeffrey and and what we and, and, J, and there's Jeffrey butt naked, split arm, broken ankle, like everybody. Everybody that comes out during this birthing scene will have the same injury, the split hand and the broken ankle. The, again, does that sound familiar to anybody? Um, so I, I think the order, I, I might be wrong on the order here, but the birthing order, if I remember correctly, was um, the green man gave birth. He either gave birth to Jeffrey or the child. And then the child or Jeffrey then gave birth to the to the to the other one. Um, then Jeffrey gave birth to the police officer. Or wait a minute, maybe Jeffrey was last. Wasn't Jeffrey last? Because he was like, hmm. Uh, that's a good question. Yeah, I might be. Get, <laughs> I might I, be. Getting I a think little it confused. is because I think that's the whole metaphor is that it's got to be him last. I mean, second to last, obviously, because the, the last um, uh, basically, you know, all these different men from the town are being birthed. And then the last birthing is fucking James, her husband. Um, and it's very obviously James because James is a black man and he's the only black man in this movie. So, <laughs> yeah. and, and then James just literally after he's birthed, there he is with his split arm and broken leg looking almost exactly like he did after, you know, his fall. Uh, she basically asks, you know, again, what do you want from me? And again, you know, he makes the comment, you know, I want you to love me. And then the scene kind of ends with Harper and James just kind of sitting on the couch. Um, very metaphorical. Um, but, you know, you kind of wonder, uh, you know, what exactly is going on, blah, blah, blah. And then we get our basically our final scene of the film, Riley, who is the friend, Harper's friend that she's been talking to on the phone, finally arrives after basically saying for the last two days, do you want me to come out there? Do you want me to come out there? You know, blah, blah, blah. Finally, Harper says, <laughs> yes, uh, the night before the shit hit the fan. <laughs> she basically says, okay, fine, come out. And that morning, um, Harper, or excuse me, Riley arrives at the house. She sees that the doors are open. She sees blood all over the front door and the, the walk up to the front door, which is basically where the green man's arm got split. So she sees the big old bloodbath right there. And then she finds Harper in the back, just kind of sitting in the garden by herself. And, and the last thing that we get is she smiles. We get a very Midsommar ending where, you know, basically Harper gives her first real smile of the whole movie. And I think this is, again, my interpretation. I think this is her basically finally coming to terms with the death of her husband, you know, finally basically allowing herself to believe that it wasn't my fault, that it was, you know, everything that I've experienced over these last few days here is a representation of everything I had to deal with with my husband. Um and potentially, like I said, the fact that everyone looked alike could be it could be Harper's interpretation. Like maybe she saw every, maybe she thinks all men are the same and that's why she's seeing them as the same person. Or it was a device for the audience, for us, more so that we would kind of see all the men as the same, potentially to kind of, you know, maybe sympathize or empathize with Harper, per se. Who knows? Again, this movie is up for so much interpretation. Um, 
Alex Garland definitely is a master of mystery and ambiguity. So um, honestly, any interpretation that you get from this movie um, I, I, it is correct, ultimately. However you look at this movie, however you take it, I feel that it's correct. And, you know, uh, it's just such a beautiful piece of work. It's something that I will definitely watch again. And I can solidly say that it is in my top five for 2022. I know it's only May. It's it's still very young. You know, we're not even halfway through the year. But, you know, the, these last three weeks in a row have been an absolute treat for me getting to watch three spectacular films, at least in my opinion. So that's it, folks. That's Men 2022. What do you got, Mike? So you have any um, final interpretations or thoughts on, like, yeah, I think the whole thing is just um, Harper just coming to terms with what she thinks um, or at least what she perceives as her fault. You know, her husband's death, be it a suicide or an accident. Um, oh, and I forgot to say, we actually do get confirmation at the very end that it was an accident. It was not a suicide. Um, the the afterlife james like the final version of james that we see he actually does talk about climbing on the upstairs neighbor's patio and his foot slipping and then falling so that that's where we get our confirmation and maybe that's why harper is smiling at the end maybe the fact that she knows james didn't commit suicide that he just had an accident um maybe makes her just come to terms with it more because like i said by the end of the movie she's smiling and fade to black and I like that ending. I do. Just like I like the Midsommar ending, I like this one, you know. Um, oh, very similar to The Witch, too. Man, yeah, all three of those have very similar kind of endings with the female protagonist kind of, uh, I, I wouldn't say having a you-go-girl moment necessarily, but just finally coming to terms, I think, with who they are and being happy with it. So, yeah. Yeah. When I was, start, when I was reflecting on it, I, I was... I was kind of listening to like other people's interpretation and now there hasn't been a whole lot because this isn't like, you know, a big blockbuster movie that tons of people have seen, but I have heard a couple shows on it and I kind of found it interesting. Like uh, there's an interpretation that what you're seeing in all these men is like, because with, when it comes to like kind of like the overall culture of men that we, we don't really have like an outlet to deal with our own trauma or our own like issues that we projected onto the women around us. So like each, each iteration of like a male in this movie was like kind of doing his version of that with her, like laying their issues out and her in either aggressive or passive aggressive ways, you know? Mm -hmm. So I thought that was kind of interesting and it's something I would have to consider with a second watch just because you kind of need the details of everything to yeah, match exactly. that up. Um, I've heard interpretations of this whole thing basically being the Garden of Eden because of the whole Apple thing at the beginning. They talk about the green man potentially represents Adam. Harper mm-hmm. represents Eve. Um, but in this case, Eve has doesn't want anything to do with Adam, which could adversely affect humanity in general. Um, so, you know, like I said, I've heard multiple interpretations. There's none of them that I would flat out disagree with because, um, you know, it, art is subjective. What you take out of it is what you take out of it. But I've I've heard some theories that are a lot better than others. And I've kind of gauged my own 
you know, based on what I took from my two viewings of the film and then some key things that I kind of agreed with while watching reviews from other shows and podcasters. So ultimately, I can't say enough good things about this movie. I know it's not going to make everybody happy. It's not a horror film for everyone. It absolutely isn't. And if somebody made the argument that this wasn't even a horror film, again, I would not argue with them. There's very much a psychological aspect to this film. Um, like I said, if 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 you want to say that nothing in this film happened and that it's all Harper's psychosis, I wouldn't disagree with that either. Uh, you know, you can there, there's little things that you can say, like why she covered in blood at the end of the movie or blah, blah, blah. But, you know, there's always little explanations that can come out as to why she sees what she sees. But, yeah. I love movies like this. You you folks know this already from listening to us for years. I, I love movies that make you think. Don't don't get me wrong. I love my gore fest. I love my splatter fest. I mean, hell, The Sadness is my number one movie of the year. So that tells you a lot more <laughs> about me than A24's Men. But um, this is an absolutely beautiful film. Well shot. I mean, obviously, if you know Alex Garland, you know his movies are awesome. I'm not the biggest fan of Annihilation, um, but it's still a beautiful film that has a lot to say. Um, I do love Ex Machina. Ex Machina, I absolutely fucking love. That's a great movie. And now this one is right up there with with uh, Ex Machina for me. So, yeah, very happy to see Alex Garland. And when this was announced like a year ago that Alex Garland would be working with A24, yeah, I was one of the people that was really excited about it. Even though his last movie, Annihilation, didn't blow my mind. Um, but, uh, but again, Annihilation is just like this one, very ambiguous. Um, he wants you to come up with your own interpretation of what the movie stands for, not, you know, serve it to you on a silver platter. So I'll always appreciate him that for that, especially, and I'll always appreciate this movie. So, yeah, I think that's about all I can really say about this one, Mike. Okay. Uh, any final thoughts, Don? Yeah, no, I'm good. Um, I wasn't really that interested in, uh, going further with it okay i mean i got my baseline interpretation and i'm fine with that so oh yeah like i said you can watch the movie at face value and you know and still get something out of it uh, depending on who you are the type of viewer that you are but ultimately yeah um like i said uh like mike said it's very polarizing this is not going to make everyone happy um you know if you're a fan of stuff like uh you know terrifier and you know um dead snow and just like all out gore fest yeah this is not the movie for you but ultimately a24 is right there right at the opening credits and if you know a24 and you love a24 there's no reason not to see this i strongly recommend if you are a fan of a24 to go out and see this while it's still playing as mike said it's not the biggest release of the year by any stretch especially coming off of everything everywhere all at once, which is now officially a two four's biggest highest grossing movie ever. Um, so obviously men is kind of going to get lost in the shuffle, but I would strongly recommend going to check this out. If anything, just to experience the sound design of this movie in a theater, the silent scenes, the, the scenes with music in them, the scenes with her echo in the background, just, yeah, so well done. So yeah. Go see it. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> all right, then. So that's going to wrap it up for our discussion on men and this episode. But let us find out where people on the show can be heard elsewhere. So, Venom, what you got? 
All right, the main show, No More Room in Hell. We will be recording episode 46 this weekend, where we'll be looking at Derek's picks, which are just a couple of fun kind of slasher-style movies. One is 2000's Cut. The other one is 2007's Drive-Thru, starring Horny the Clown. Yes, Horny the Clown, that's an actual character. Go figure. Um, I learned this. These are both first-time watches for me, so yeah, Horny the Clown is definitely... uh, Let's just say an experience. So if you want to find out what we thought about those two films, plus, you know, all of our segments at the beginning, uh, that episode should be available, I would say, late next week by the time, you know, it's edited and put out. Um, So look out for that. No More Room in Hell presents Creature Comforts. Episode 9 should be available as you listen to this podcast. Should be available on darkdiscussions.com. On that episode, we looked at Cloverfield with our special guest David Garrett Jr. Um, from Journey with Journey with a Cinephile, right? That's his podcast, I believe. I don't want to say it wrong. Journey of a Cinephile or Journey with a Cinephile? Of or two, yeah. It was of or two. I or two, yeah. So, yeah. So, there you go. So check- Either or. Search for one. If you can't find it, it's the other one. Yeah, yeah. Just look up Journey Cinephile. You'll probably find it. But, yeah. Um, he joins us for our discussion on Cloverfield. Um, actually, turned out to be a really fun episode. So check that out if you can. And uh, let's see. I did a guest spot last week on the Dark Parade, appearing on my fourth episode of the Dark Parade now with Mr. Bo Ransdell. On that episode, we looked at my favorite universal horror classic ever, and that is, of course, 1935's The Bride of Frankenstein. I absolutely adore that film, and if you want to find out why, run over to Legion Podcast and check out the latest episode of The Dark Parade. And that's it for me, Mike. All right, uh, Don, what do you got? Um, all I have is, um, you know, Creature Comforts, as mentioned, but um, the latest episode of uh, the Horror Countdown, uh, we went a little topical with this one. I, I kind of shuffled the rotation around to get it out. Um, I was joined by a, a friend of mine, uh, Tim O'Leary, and we looked at our favorite post-2000 queer horror films. So this was kind of uh, right in line with uh, Pride Month uh, being in June. So, uh yeah, we kind of, uh, you know, shuffled the rotation around and got that one out. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, I, I know, I realized it was kind of, uh, you know, we, I, I already did one all, um, I think it was episode nine or 10 where we did queer films all time. Uh, this one is uh post 2000. So, uh, yeah, I don't think there's anything else, but, uh, yeah, that's, uh, just about all I got. Okay, and I got nothing else to add besides the main show. So, um, as far as Fresh Cuts goes, the next movie, probably not a surprise for anyone that keeps up on new releases. Cronenberg uh, is back with, uh, with the Crimes of the Future. Yeah, legit body horror from the master. I mean, folks, I try to say I curb my expectations, but I I just can't help it with this. I love Cronenberg. I don't think he's ever made a bad movie, in my opinion. And um, I've been told, I haven't seen the trailer, but I have been told that this is legit body horror. So I am very fucking excited. So yeah, Crimes of the Future. I don't care how far I got to drive to see it. I will find it. (laughs) And yeah. we're probably going to look at uh, three weeks in a row of me not liking something. So. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do Shark Bait the week after. 
I don't think it's fresh enough. Oh, wait, wasn't there a new one? Is that the new one, Sharkbait? I thought there was a yeah, new shark. Yeah, oh, but okay. it's not new enough. It's not fresh enough anymore. Oh, good. It's rotten. We should have, we should have done it for either hatching or this week, but... Uh, oh, gotcha, gotcha. Oh, yeah. Well. It's it's going to be about a month now, so I figure it's not fresh enough. Yeah, and we we got a long straight we got a streak of theatrical releases coming in June between, um, like I Black- said, Crimes of the Future. We've got Black- uh, The Watcher. We've got um, Black Phone too's coming. Black out Phone with Ethan Hawke. I think Bodies, Bodies, Bodies might actually be coming no, out. I think like- that's August. Oh, is that August? Okay. I think so. Um, but I know I remember looking at my AMC like schedule, future schedule, and I remember thinking, shit, I'm going to the movies every weekend in June. So, um, so yeah, well, <laughs> it's pretty obvious what we're going to be doing as the weeks kind of go along. Though, the more I see about the Watcher, the more it kind of looks like I don't know, kind of a thriller. But yeah, that uh, would, you know. I would probably be willing to bet that could be the throwaway amongst all the releases. Yeah, well, we'll see. I mean, if there's nothing better that week, then I guess we'll probably end up doing it. But who knows? Oh, oh I, I do know. Um, I do know one thing. Just um, in case of VOD, I know Mad God is finally getting on Shutter. So. Oh, I think we're. I think we're going to save that for another show. <laughs> ah, gotcha. <laughs> yeah, I think it's about time that show did a new new movie, and and I've been waiting for this movie for like the nine months that I've heard about it. So. Yeah, yeah. I, I I kind of figured where you're going with that. Just off of that, so. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, there, there's that. no, there's definitely not a lack of film releases over the next month or two. So lots of stuff to watch. Wait, I didn't hear you mention Kirk Cameron presents the homeschool movie. Um, <laughs> hmm. Probably because um, I didn't know about it, and I'm very glad that I didn't know about it, except I'm for sure. the fact that you just told me about it, and now I have that knowledge living in my brain rent free, and I'm not happy about it. Yeah, I'm sure it's horror for a yeah, whole I'll different channel reason. Yeah, Derek on this one. Fuck you, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where's Derek when we need him? <laughs> the thing, the thing's getting a 40th anniversary release at my theater. Yeah, I bought the 4K, I, and I've already seen it in a theater. I think I saw it like in 2005. Like, yeah, uh, a lot of these reissues I've actually seen. Like if if they started re-releasing like a little bit more obscure stuff, I'd go. But a lot of these I've just seen at different festivals throughout the years anyway. Well, they should have done what Suspiria did. Um, Suspiria did the 40th anniversary 4K presentation in theaters first and then released the 4K Blu-ray. The, yeah. uh, the thing 4K Blu-ray has been out for like nine months now. So, you know, I, I love the theater. I do. But the thing 40th anniversary is probably not going to be at a place where I can see it, you know, for free with my reward membership. I'll probably have to go to a more indie theater. And I don't know, paying 20 bucks to see a movie that I just spent 30 bucks for the 4K Blu-ray. Eh, I don't know. I got money, but I ain't got that much money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it just seems kind of like a throwaway. Yeah, great movie. But yeah, I, I've seen it so much. I, I don't think. And, and like I said, if I had never seen it in the theater before, maybe. But I did see it like 15 years ago in the theater. So I'm happy. I think it was cool. the 25th anniversary, actually, now that I think about it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, okay. Well, that's going to do it for this episode. So thank you everybody for listening. We will be back in less than a week's time, actually, to talk some Cronenberg. So until then, thanks everybody for listening. We will catch you next time. Let's say bye to the listeners. Later. Ladies, please be aware of those red flags. They're there for a reason. Don't eat the apple off the tree.
<laughs> oh, fuck it. Eat the apple. No, I say fuck <laughs> it. Eat the apple and spit it in the guy's face. That's what I say. <laughs> Peace. Adios.